Hello and welcome to Gamer Tees episode two. Thanks for coming back and joining us. Uh, with today's episode, we're gonna be talking about narratives. We're talking about the depth of narratives used, particularly in open world games. And um, in the last episode, we were speaking a lot about Zelda and we got to a point where we were kind of discussing actually what makes this next or this newest title so appealing. And James, who's in the studio with me again today, um, kind of briefly mentioned it was this kind of heralding fact of going back to some of the old titles but actually the gameplay being this open world, but somehow managing to get the urgency and the linear gameplay right somehow. And I don't know how that, how, if that's changed, James, in your opinion since you've been playing it more. So today we're going to speak a little bit more about the, the power of narratives. And um, to kick us off, James is going to give us an update on his adventures in the world of Zelda. Hi, James. Hello, co-host B. James here. <laughs> you've gone with it. Yeah, nice. I've gone with it. <laughs> so get us up to date. How's Zelda going for you? Uh, still well. I mean, as I was telling you over lunch, um, last night was the first night I haven't played it since launch, and that's only because I'm playing another game, so I'm cheating on it now. Crikey. Yeah, that's... Um, um, but still haven't finished it. Well... Um, and, and close. You're getting closer. <laughs> but what, what, do you, what do you think, though? Do you want to finish it? Do you oh, want yeah. To be a, a... Well, actually, the, the problem I'm facing with it is I don't want to finish it. Because uh, yeah. now I'm at, I'm at the point where, really, I could go straight to Gannon Castle now. I'm... I've got pretty much everything I need to do it, but I'm just like, but there's so much other stuff I want to do, I still want to explore, even though I've unlocked all the map, but yeah. I, I don't want to rush it. And on the one hand, there's a kind of a sense of urgency, well, Ganon's right there, Hyrule's in peril still, but at the same time, <laughs> it's like, people who are, like, I think I still need to hand in a quest where someone wanted me to take a photo of some like giant lizard skeleton, got to hand that in, and right. other people got some other... More mundane issues than that. <laughs> okay, can I dare ask you, how many hours have you clocked so far? Well, interesting, the Switch, by default, doesn't tell you how many hours you play until you played a game, or until you've owned it for 10 days. Then after the 10-day point, it goes, oh, by the way, this is how many hours you've actually put into it. Why is that? Is it trying to decipher its loyal users? <laughs> I'm really not too sure why it does this. Because oh. it only happened after the, the launch, well, actually, before launch, the people who got the Switch early and they were viewing it, and so it's like, hey, on a minute <laughs> 10 days that's an interesting yes, if, we, if it was, I could get a week 10 days I mean yes it's you know, nice even 10 but it's weird but yeah nonetheless to answer your question I'm now on 65 hours 65 hours clock. one of my friends is on 150 whoa okay <laughs> so we're talking about considerable time sync mm. basically and how are you finding it? Is it still that kind? Of, is it still that escapism that you had in the first hour you approached the game does it still offer you some I don't know, does it still offer you some gems? I would almost say more so because you're familiar with how the game works and all the mechanics and the, the controls of it, but at the same time, and again, I've got the map unlocked now, but I, now I'll look at the map and think, well, that area looks interesting. I haven't been to that part of the map, and there might be a case I need to go over there for Cyquess or something, and I'll go, well, I'll just take a detour around here to see what's there. And like most of the time, I found something that being remotely interesting. What you mentioned there, actually, because in this obviously episode we're going to talk about the power of narratives and we're talking about open world games particularly, and you talk about detour there, mm. you know, and, that, and that's quite a, a powerful phrase, if you like, within this genre because it opens up these worlds, mm. isn't it? I mean, traditionally you see it in, uh, we're going to talk a bit later on about Bethesda, the games that make a real point of the detour, if you like, but how does, how does Zelda get that, you know, influence of the detour so right? Because, you know, it is... Well, very, there's a really good kind of counter link point to that because the kind of crux the core of the story in a way because you unlock a lot of it through these like 
smallish video, somewhere about like a minute to two minutes long, another one nearing five minutes long, like a traditional cutscene. But the way you get the cutscene, you had to, you when fairly early on in the game, uh, you get you unlock these images and Zelda put basically gives you to them through some various way which won't go too in depth about. Sure. But anyway, where these images say if you go to this place you'll unlock a memory basically and it will give you like a cutscene dump but it says uh-huh. it's more interesting than that. Right. But in a sense the main story you access it through detours. Okay. You have to kinda of go out of your way and say, like, Oh go and do that dungeon, I'll go to this place that I kind of worked out where it is based on this image. Although you can go to the stables and there's a painter guy there who goes, oh, if you show me a photo, I'll give you, you know, I'll tell you roughly where it is. But he didn't go, oh, it's there. Not again going to Bethesda where you go, go here on your map. You'll go, oh, well, if you go to like this landmark, it'll be kind of like southwest of that landmark. Okay, so are we talking about, and here we go, here's the humanities now. Are we talking about the power of subtle suggestion then and actually by not having a kind of defined endpoint to a quest, mm. but actually more a suggestive route from the characters yeah. and dialogue, you're more likely to take that. Because also with those things, I, think, I can't remember the exact number of them, but there's, there's a do- almost a dozen of them, but you, aren't, you get them in any order, and also it doesn't matter what order you go in, because yes, there is technically a linear progression of how the cutscenes go. Like at the end, when I do get them all, I'll watch them in order, and, it will make more sense but at the same time they do work on their own and you can kind of see how they all fit in and they're dotted all evenly around the overall Hyrule map so you with some of them will go oh I know that's in the desert well yeah. I'm not going to go to the desert yet but when I do I'll make a point of going in that direction where I think it roughly is so you are you are you are planning pre-planning your routes then you yeah. are very much and would you say you're planning, you know, in advance of actually hitting a location? Is is that is yeah. that is there like a, an effort on your behalf to actually route plan? Then is that effort seems a bit strong work. It's like I want to do it. It didn't seem like a like a, oh it's out of my way. I want to do it. Yeah, okay. It's like a, a fun introduction to an area or another way to explore it. And that's a bit it's, yeah. it's focused without saying you have to do this because you don't have to get them. No. Although apparently if you do get all of them, you get like a bonus scene to the ending after you do everything in Hyrule Castle. Mm. I mean, and, and I suppose that then leads on to this discussion of the Bethesda range of games. And in particular Skyrim, which for me, although looked beautiful, and I found myself walking up, you know, mountains and things purely to get a screenshot. And that sounds mm. ridiculous, but there was an element well, of that kind that, of... I do that all the time in Breath of the Wild. <laughs> Well, absolutely. As we spoke in the last episode about the, the beauty, you know, captured in the screenshot within those games. But there was an element of that game where I didn't necessarily want to go off the beaten path. Mm. And that's not to say there wasn't the quality of the kind of the aesthetics of the environment, if you like. And because that was really attractive. But the quest just didn't feel like I needed to make those choices. You know, it, it wasn't suggestive. It was a case of you can do this or you can't do that. Mm. And, and to me, when I was confronted with that option, it was always to go down the main route. Because in a way, I wanted to get rid of the story so I could have the world to explore without that yeah. kind of the hindrance or the burden of a story lurking, which is ridiculous to think about. But then I compare that to Morrowind and then Oblivion. And Oblivion, um, I, I prefer Morrowind and actually Skyrim to Oblivion in terms of gameplay. Oblivion, and this is what something you mentioned to me earlier, had this idea of the pace, of this urgency to complete mm. a lot of these quests. So you felt like you had this pace to be able to, you know, to meet. And that seems completely absent, in my opinion, on Skyrim. Yeah, I completely agree. Because, as you said, 
Sky Moon, like gameplay wise, it plays really well, but almost too well. It, there's not a lot of actually really holding you back, mm. and it, it does almost make you feel a bit too powerful, like you're the most powerful thing as well. Whereas Oblivion, I found like the well was reacting, it was kind of pushing me back, going, No, hang on, you're not strong enough yet, and we're going to make you realize that. Mm-hmm. And the whole leveling up system was all in a sense a pain, but it yeah it was a good feedback response to it and also the story i was saying that it felt like there was an urgency you could do it you felt like what you were doing but also at the same time all the side quest stuff especially the faction mission because they seemed more well-rounded than they did in skyrim all in their own way seemed to add to the overall narrative of the world that you're in yeah and i think it helped that with oblivion it was this diverse landscape yes you had the big um Kind of city area in the middle, but all the other regions had their own character to them, and also their own races to them. Well, with Skyrim, it was all Nordic. Yes, very I mean, much. Yes, so. you had other races, and the scenery did alter when you got further away from the center. But ultimately, it was snow mountains. Okay, so once you've seen a snow mountain, you've seen them all. Is what yeah. you're saying, basically? Okay, well, that, that that's interesting. I mean, my my thought with with, with Skyrim, when what we're basically alluding to there is actually sometimes. Too open can be can be too much for us to be able to what make use of or to to, to navigate. Is that what we're saying here? Or well, I mean, you could say the how quests ultimately work out is not too dissimilar between Skyrim yeah. and Oblivion. I think it partly context almost, but and then maybe the diversity within the contexts. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And 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 what you say about that kind of the hero's quest that is part of the Oblivion um, mm-hmm. fabric, which is to start with, you are a, a poor man in a jail cell and you have to work your way up to be able to reach these goals. Well, yeah, because then, yeah, because you could say Skyrim and Oblivion start very similar. You're both, in both your... Well, oh, you're a prisoner, aren't you, of types, yeah. And you come out. But the difference is in Oblivion, you're not actually the hero. You're enabling other people to save the day. Mm-hmm. Whereas Skyrim, you are the Doverkin. It's like... And everything's about how great you are, etc., etc. As I say, with Oblivion, you were more an enabler, and I think that makes you feel more part of the world. Mm. So, okay. And then we meant, we, we go on to mention another one of their titles, which is um, New Vegas. Mm. And I, I, I have not played New Vegas for a couple of years, but you reminded me again there was, there was quite significant um, rewards to fulfilling those side quests there, there was there was an urgency but there was also um how to word it i suppose a, a bigger reward than what would normally you'd normally get in a side quest with with new vegas and that was what and that affects the overall kind of yeah because with new vegas there's a lot about the faction but it's actually kind of similar to what i was saying about oblivion how that worked mm. though is actually more essential in this because the factions kind of influence how the game ends it's got multiple different ways yeah. it can end mm-hmm. and the, the factions feed into that how loyal you are I mean then if you're loyal with one it might affect the other yeah. but then you've got a quest within that but also <laughs> the world seemed more alive as well and the side quest just seemed had just seemed to have a little bit more character to them yeah. I did really enjoy Fallout 3 and the engine same but I just thought New Vegas just had that like edge over it but then with Fallout 4 I just the things I liked about Fallout 3 just seemed somehow lacking in 4. And I, mm. I, I finished 3 and I finished New Vegas, but I think I might be halfway through 4 and I just haven't played it for a year and I kind of can't be asked. Do you think Fallout 4 and Skyrim suffer the same fate in that perhaps they've tried to, to perfect the open world a little bit too much and that kind of 
And we talk about the linear story, but actually the linear story is needed, isn't it, in, in these open world environments. You can have as many side quests and mm. branches as you like, but there has to be a compelling um, or a grabbing linear story to keep pulling you back in. Yeah, because 4 does have a more concrete overarching narrative where your child being kidnapped by yeah. the Institute, you need to go get the child. Oh yeah, that's a big deal, like, absolutely. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a clear journey for the hero, but then you're doing various things in between. It's like... Was I meant to be rescuing child that apparently I'm connected to? I, yeah. I've got no connection to the child, even though you're there when they they are a small child, like a baby. Mm, mm. Didn't care. No, there was. And there like, was you see that. your like your partner be killed in that. Still didn't care because you were with them for like ten minutes, and yeah, yeah. you're meant to have this emotional yeah care affiliation with them. And I, I found myself more. Um, caring for the community I was trying to rescue and build within that game. And that was one of the highlights for me when I, when I think about it was this idea that I'm, I'm trying to rebuild this area. Yeah. You know, the power generators and things mm. like that. And this collection of people will slowly grow. And although that was a great aspect, it was actually totally detracting from the fact that my son was still out there needing yeah. his dad. And I couldn't care less in game mm. because I was more worried about the bulbs, you know, being lit, you know, and it's ridiculous. Mm. But that's how I. But also the allies you get in there because you can do kind of look at what essentially are loyalty quests in them. And I, because I can't remember the name of the android detective, but like his side thing was really interesting. Yeah. That was the best part of that game so far for me. Yeah, absolutely. It was fantastic, fantastic. So it's character. not as if like Fallout 4 failed completely narrative, it has this. It had points there, but I just feel as a complete package, it's weak. Yeah. We talk about kind of weak packages, but you, you, we go back to Zelda very quickly before we, we, we carry on here. What is it that Zelda gets right? Because there is a very strong linear storyline, mm. but there's also this grasping effect that the, that the side quests take that we perhaps haven't seen before, you mm. know? Is it because those side quests are suggested, suggesting routes to complete the, the main quest? Is it because it's looting quite quite nicely in that? Is it to do with the environment? I don't think it... I think the environment's beautiful, but you could also argue Skyrim's environment's beautiful mm. as well, and so you'd want to investigate that world purely from an aesthetic point of view. So what is it that Zelda's doing so right? Or is it just getting the balance right in all of these? I mean, it is partly <coughs> to cop out the latter way, balancing it, but I think with... Hyrule is a very diverse place in this game, you, which, again, Skyrim is. It's actually similar to Oblivion, the way the map laid out. You've yeah. got kind of, well, actually, to be fair, the difference in here, the centre is destroyed because of Ganon. Yeah. But then you've got, you've got a few urban settlements, and they're interesting in themselves, and each one styled very differently. You've got like a more population there, you've got the different races, but you've got various abandoned things. And while it's rare they'll actually have really much of any story to them at all there's just this implied sense to them you think oh I wonder what that is or mm. maybe if it links back to a previous game like I won't say what this quote by one of the characters was but they mentioned something I thought well that linked back directly to a previous game now yeah. what that means for the timeline and all the other stuff which we came to here and to be fair a lot of people don't care about that stuff yeah. but I totally find that interesting but you've got those aspects to it there but with the side quests each if weird, they've been able to. I can't. I've never really seen an aspect where the character model has been repeated like, directly. Quite often, you'll have like, especially maybe not directly, but there'll be in the Bethesda game there'll be similar character models all changed them minutely. Whereas mm. in Zelda, they've done really a surprisingly good job at making each person like slightly different. Yeah, absolutely. And even people like you'll just meet out in the field. They'll just be 
going from one place to another, going about their business, they might be selling you stuff as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm very aware we, we've spoken in the last, well, this episode and the last episode and being very promotive of Zelda. Uh, and for the, for the audience listening in, I think it's probably important that we just put a disclaimer there that we're, <laughs> we're not um, working for Nintendo and we're certainly um, trying to take a very balanced approach to this. But I think what we're trying to ascertain actually is the development of storyline and narrative. And actually Zelda is a very good case example of getting story right. When mm. we're talking about the defense of storyline, and I'll go on to talk about that in a little bit more later, Zelda is what narrative should be in video games, isn't it? It's, it's this, and it's managed to capture this audience of both the kind of the more hardcore kind of story-driven gamer but also those that are wanting to dip their turn into, into a beautiful world for the escapism element. And it, and it combines both of those elements, doesn't yeah, it? I've been reading a lot more recently about how it has been getting people in because it, with the start, it, it does give you a lot of freedom. So if you want the story, you can't, it is there for, I mean, not some people have also complained that, oh, there's no story. Well, there is a story. You just have to look for it. I mean, mm. yes, you could say, well, with previous games, it just kind of threw it on you, but it does partly do that as well. Because when you, in the process of getting to each dungeon, it does give you story. The story's there, but the other stories are there if you want it. Yeah. I, I think, think it just, it does it at a different pace. It's a different pace. It's all about pace, isn't mm. it, actually? You're absolutely right. So this brings you on to the next part of our conversation. And I'm going to title it In Defense of Storyline. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that is, and, and it might seem quite, quite, a, quite a basic thing to mention, a lot of people are thinking, well, how can you have a video game without a storyline? But when we're talking about the, these MMOs and, and such, there is a lot of scripting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of meat that goes into this, as, as you can imagine. And there's been this conversation online that sometimes that, that com- those conversations, that dialogue, those story arcs take precedence over gameplay. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. There's probably some examples of that happening with some MMOs. So if we look at storyline as a driver... Let's now talk about Tom Clancy's newest games, okay? And you wanted to talk about, I want to speak, talk about, um, you want to talk about the club, didn't you? Yes, but it's not a Tom Clancy game. No, not the club. Oh my gosh. The crew. That's just, and so you want to talk about the crew, didn't you? I'm going to redo that bit, okay? Right. Let me do it again. And you wanted to talk about the crew, didn't you? Yes. Um, and the reason for that is because it was a, a oh, unusual use of story almost is, I really enjoyed the crew however and this is a big effort it has one of the worst narratives in a game I have come across in well over a decade it's so bad it was it was one of those games where they didn't necessarily need I don't I think you could have taken it out and I think the game might actually be better for it because essentially with the story of the crew is I don't even care about spoiling it because you're, you're not, you're not going to miss something. Oh, I wish I didn't know what the, the plot is to the crew. <laughs> it basically starts off, your, your brother is like head of this racing crew. I can't even remember the name of the crew. It's, I think, oh, the V10s, that was it. Yeah. They were called the V10s. <laughs> and yeah, anyway, your brother is like head of the V10s. They're basically a racing club. They do a little bit of legal stuff on the side, but it's, it's small enough. Uh, but you're, the character you play, he's not in the crew because mm-hmm. he's too reckless. Yeah, 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 yeah. He plays by his own rules, <laughs> even though the other group is like a crew of outlaws, <laughs> but he's too outlaw for the outlaws. <laughs> but anyway, you're, for some reason, you're driving your brother to a meetup, and he's like, you sure you don't want to be in the crew? He's like, oh no, gosh. I don't want to be in the crew. <laughs> but anyway, so he's meeting one of his like leaders, because each... They've got different levels of people within it and they're named mm. after different engine types. 
I yeah. can't remember what they are, it's like V8s or so on. Wow. Um, anyway, you go there, you meet the guy, it turns out he betrayed you, and then he, he shoots your brother dead, and then there's a cop who he's working with, who bad guy's working with, who frames you, so you get locked up for like a couple of years. Yeah. And then, next thing you know, it's like he does a classic, two years later. <laughs> oh, great. And you're in an interview room in the police station, and then this detective, she comes up to you, he's like, I know you didn't do it. Right. <laughs> it's like, we're going to get the guy who did this. And then it's all about how the cop is actually crooked. You've got to take him down, but you had to do it legit yeah. and you had to infiltrate the crew. No yeah. one knows you're your brother. You're the brother. Yeah. And you had to work wow. with it. Cause in those two years, the the racing crew is like gone nationwide. It takes over all America and they're doing all the dotty stuff. Yeah, and yeah. The cop profiteering out of this. You're wow. taken down. You have to work your way up to each different area. Wow. And that's literally the plot. Okay. Uh, what was interesting, I didn't realise to the end, so I got to the credits, Troy Baker plays the lead guy. Right. <laughs> I was like, of course he no, did. Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair to you, he did play with conviction. I'll give him that. Yeah. But that was the only positive thing I can say about the voice acting or in it. Because there was one mm. expen- expansion, well, there was this police one. And obviously it's set in the continent of United States. Yet in this expansion, which is about police, the main cop is British. They, they didn't say what, she, why, why? They didn't say she's pretty, but they had a British accent. Right. <laughs> and, like, and when I'm playing, it's like, this is taking me out of the realism so badly. <laughs> <laughs> it just made no sense in the slightest. So what happened? Is, is all of that dialogue, is all of that storyline, those narratives based on um, the kind of the Fast and the Furious based sort of genre of film and they're trying to translate that? So it is a bit cheesy, it is a bit in your face, but it works. Or is it a case of gameplays obviously come way before and they've decided actually we need to put some sort of story to this and that's been at after. I think it might or... be a bit of both because I, I think the Fast and Furious might be a good comparison. I mean, I haven't seen Fast and Furious and Tokyo Drift, which is one of the cheesiest films I've ever seen, but I do actually have a, have a soft, soft spot, spot for it. Yeah. Also, I had it on HD DVD as well. So. Oh, the old red case. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. So there's that as well. But, you know, I, I enjoyed that for how stupid that film was. <laughs> but with the crew, the thing is, the handling of the cars and the crew, you had slight impact over you. could make it more realistic or arcade like that, but it had a really nice sweet spot that was actually quite similar to PGR. Yes. So that's why I really enjoyed the game, but it was open worldish and the way the races worked, they had some authorship over it. Like they, they had actually carefully planned out how the races work, but yeah, it's in this open world setting and they managed to merge the balance between the two really nicely. So it worked playing the crew and you don't even have to skip the cut scenes and all that yeah. because they are amusing at how bad they are, especially right. when it has the stereotypical hacker girl. Oh, right. Okay. So playing on stereotypes there. Okay. Every stereotype is in that game. Okay. But this... And then I'm going to go and talk about Division now. And another I, Ubisoft game. Another Ubisoft game. But Ubisoft are kind of... And obviously you've got the Assassin's Creed franchise. And we, we probably should talk a little bit about that when we're talking about narratives. Because I'm one of probably... Not a few, but there is a select group of people that believes Assassin's Creed 1 was the best of the lot. <laughs> I think... Maybe it's Many just me. I don't know if anyone I does. Mean, I think I, it is. I like Assassin's Creed one. I think it, I think it it been looked back harshly, but it has. Yeah, but it was it was the creation of 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 of, the, of that kind of you know not genre as such, but that kind of that theme which has just been so strong ever since. Um, but the, the division for me was um, again. An, and I don't know why it's got so so many critics. It's actually probably nothing to do with, with the storyline as such. 
but it had a wonderful balance in my mind between narratives, between cutscenes and, and gameplay. Like I felt like as I played through it, I genuinely wanted to unlock more of the story, more of the kind of the, the what it, what obviously had happened with the kind of the virus and things like that, as much as I wanted to un unlock an, another weapon to aid me to better do that. There was this kind of this perfect symmetry be between the two. And that to me was narrative working with gameplay mechanics. And it was really nice to, to, to see and, and to feel. And that's why I played The Division for a long time. Now, the, from the sounds of it, and the crew's obviously got that balance wrong. Are there any other games you feel at the moment which are restoring that balance or that you feel needs certain improvement in terms of actually bringing in this the narrative more well, actually, again. Just before we go on to that, so with The Division, did you play a lot of it? Because obviously you can do co-op pretty much throughout the entire Yeah, I played... Did I, you play yeah. a lot of it co-op or was it, did you do you I start, I started. I started The Division um, solo and then when I got to a certain level, I think it was level 13 or 14, mm -hmm. I, 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 I co-opted from there on in. Well, okay, because the reason why I also ask that, because the crew is also technically co-op. Like, you can bring in people, pretty much any race, which also makes no... I mean, that's it, but i say it makes no sense to narrative, but you could just say they're another member of your crew who's helping out in a race. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't actually detract from the narrative, which again, adds to the point, that game does not really need a strong narrative, but yeah. with the division, so... Did the multiplayer aspect have any impact on the narrative, did you think? Because that was yeah. part of the reason why I didn't play it, because I wasn't too sure how I was dealing with the balance. Because Destiny kind of failed with that balance. It did, yeah, absolutely. For, so for me, The Division, I felt the narrative was stronger solo than it was multiplayer. Mm. Because when you're multiplayer, you're creating your own narrative in a way, aren't you? Yeah. Because the interactions you have with your buddies, and it's not just talking about the voice comms, although that plays a part in it, but it's when you know you have a man down and you have to you have to navigate that map to be able to revive them or you know you're sharing weapons and you're taking that extra time for that community aspect of the game yeah that's its own narrative and everything that the game throws at you in terms of set narrative is bonus so mm. you work in a team of three or four okay cutscene unlocked we we tended to rush through i suppose those kind of main story arcs as as a multiplayer capacity because we were almost filling the gaps ourselves you know there's a lot of um, suggestive kind of visuals within it, the maps you know and, and the characters and things like that and what the division did really well i suppose it wanted it almost invited you to look more into the backstory and i and i love it when a game does that i love it when i come off a game and i want to know more about the backstory as opposed yeah. to the current stage i'm at and so the multiplayer was was really nice in in that you know and of course there is that whole leveling up aspect there is the unlock of weaponry and things like that but to play it solo, you you know, we, we talked about that idea of having, you know, that pace of urgency, mm. genuinely wanting to make a difference in this world. That's how it felt. It was right. ridiculous, but I kind of felt that, I you know, at each stage, I needed to unlock this. And of course, it works on this map structure again, where you went <coughs> certain parts of the map are at different levels, mm. but you want to, you know, go here and, and you go there. And you want to unlock it because you want to see how the how the streets look as well you know this is in the winter time and it's and it's and it's new york and it's during christmas and you want to see how these streets look you want to see how the people are reacting you want to see how they reacted to the outbreak and so it invites you to look into the darker corners of the streets you know and the side and the side um side streets and things like that and to me that was really great single player but that doesn't convert to multiplayer because, like I said, it's more of a case of you're creating all of that within the group. And I don't know how better to explain that. But, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at at the minute, I suppose, with trying to unpack that. But what the, what, what the Division, I suppose, um, really lacked, actually, was progress beyond that main story arc. And I think you've got this idea of the, the, 
I what they called it, the dark space or the dark sector? What was yeah. it called? Was it even dark zone? Dark zone. There you go, the yeah. dark zone. And that's and that's meant to be a big thing for the multiplayer, but it didn't. It doesn't necessarily work for me mm. that because it, it lost purpose. Because it was meant to, it was the PvP zone, wasn't it? Where you yeah. can kind of work together, but you, they only made a big deal about how you could betray your friends. Yeah, but I don't want to betray them. You know, you spent all this time. <laughs> mm. it's, that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but you spent all this time working with like-minded players yeah. to, to to conquer and become hero of, of of the city. The last thing I want to do is go into the dark zone, turn around, and shoot someone in the head. Yeah, it's fun first or second time. Yeah. But after a while, it feels very empty. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really it's really quite incredible the effect it has. So I don't go in the dark zone. You know, I avoid it at all costs, mm. and to the point where we actually end up replaying missions we've already done just because we liked. We like the pace and the buzz that it, it gave to us, and I suppose that's that's co-op gaming at its best in many yeah. ways, isn't it? So, but um, no, that's my experience of it. But then, how, how do you have any experiences of, of, of multiplayer gaming where actually the the main story arc or, or the narrative structure plays out better for a group as it would have done better than it would have done for a solo player? Or I'm trying to think, because I mean, I don't play too many games that, where you get the option to do co-op. I'm, when they've been the option, I haven't played too many of them. I've, I did do it a bit with Gears of War, and that actually worked quite well because we've got two main people in there, and they're always there. Mm. And when they do split up in the story, it's actually still it works actually better when you do it in a co-op because you're controlling both, and you're over mics or if you're in the same room saying, "Oh, this is what's happening to me," and then like, "Oh, this is happening to me." Yeah. So you, that worked well. Halo Three particularly actually worked quite well, even kind of has some story impacts on it but obviously nothing direct it's just mm. the fact you could if you were do, if you're doing it pure co-op it worked very well could both because you played chief and i think the arbiter was in the third one so they yeah. were both there so that also worked well and i did do a lot of that and they were kind of more enjoyable but usually added a bit more challenge to it mm-hmm. yeah but then of course then there was destiny which was all about co-op but yet if if we didn't really know quite what it was going to do with the narrative because in the cutscenes it was just whoever designated player one for it yet it's all about co-op in that game mm-hmm. it's like you you've got the weird disconnect to it absolutely and but then you know I, I i look back to mass effect okay and for me mass effect was everything i love about storyline mm-hmm. So it, it harked back to the kind of the genre and the 80s kind of um, sci-fi, you know, elements, um, things that I love. So everything from the, from the soundtrack. And that was the start of the narrative for me because I knew instantly I was going into um, this world that I would love and recognize the characters yeah. from, my, from my experience with the sci-fi genre mm-hmm. in films. But then, you know, as much as you love the storyline, the gameplay doesn't quite match that are you still connection are you just me. referring just to the first Mass Effect game or that first trilogy I'm talking at the minute about the first mm. first game because for me I didn't enjoy the second as much as the first right but then the third I felt was an improvement that's again. really interesting because I also, I also really enjoyed the first one and yes the gameplay wasn't as polished but it yeah. felt like a very traditional RPG yes all yeah. the main RPG elements were there mm. And the, the problem is really, they were really setting up the universe. And while they were doing that, they wouldn't have time to look more at the minutiae. So we yeah, had sure. a lot of assets being reused. And so a lot of the bases looked almost identical. And yeah. that did take out some of it. But because, as you say, the soundtrack, they got spot on on the first two games. Yeah. Because it was the same composer. So that really added to it. And 
when they got it right, they got it really right. Oh, absolutely. And also the story. I thought Mass Effect 1 had the strongest individual story because say they didn't say there wasn't a Mass Effect 2 or 3, it did have a clear ending. It worked mm -hmm. very well in a sense. It's like how Star Wars Episode 1 and Star Wars Episode 4 both actually work as individual films if, you, if there weren't any others. Yes, that would be it, absolutely. But you're right because for all its failings, I don't think the list is absolutely massive, but for the failings that it had, it made up for plus some for those moments it got absolutely right. Mm. And one of those moments it got right was actually the whole opening sequence. Yeah. You know, for me, that was an absolutely incredible five minutes. You know, that was, that in its own right was a film trailer for me, you know. <laughs> and I felt connected with my character in, in a way that was, well, it was, it was just, it was just incredible, you know. And, and that's, for me, was why Mass Effect works so yeah. well. Well, I mean, that whole trilogy, all, each one is, to me, almost seems like a very different game. Because one, you had the kind of self-contained story that did a lot and did it mm. well. Two was all about individual stories of people. And that also worked well. Whereas yeah. three, to me, I mean, yes, there's always controversy about the ending, which I, we won't really touch No, we don't need to on. touch on that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a problem anyway. But three, I really liked it. It actually has some of my favourite moments in the whole trilogy because it was all about payoff. Yes, it was. Because you yeah. with the characters and then something would happen to them and it really, it mattered to you because you knew that even when one of the most important moments to me in that game was about a character was in two, not about what happened to characters that I'd known since Mass Effect 1. Yeah, sure. So that really showed how that paid off well. Mm. So I'm not totally weird thinking one, then three, then two as my lineup. Or is that still a little bit un... I mean... <laughs> It's an unpopular one, but I, I'm not going to say you're wrong because that's what I think is great about the mass, that original Mass Effect trilogy. Yeah. Because for me, I think it goes, well, I'm not, probably not alone, it's in 213. But, so you're 213, aren't you? Okay, okay. But I, I, Gosh, I'm, I'm totally more, out. I'm, I'm more totally going to say one though. first, though, because I really, one was so good to me, just that core story, it did so much. Yeah. It but, might, yeah. But also, two had another special point for me because uh, when, when it came out at the time, I was. I started my first year university and I'm doing a politics degree. Mm. There's a lot of politics in the Mass Effect trilogy. Yeah. But the problem is I'm playing it so much of the time and I was doing the classic student lifestyle. I'll, I'll go to bed around 4am in the morning and wake up at 4 in the afternoon. Right, perfect. But because I'm playing at those unsociable hours, it kind of did weird things to my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so I was still, I'll be revising some political aspect of the real world and merging it with what happened in the Mass Effect universe. Wow, okay. And I'll be going to my friend and be saying something to go, they were just looking at me, it's like, I'm sorry, what, what's this? <laughs> it's like, that's right, it's not real. Interesting. So, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. that's the strength of the, the narrative that they created in that whole universe. They created a real universe. Mm. Which I suppose leads then to my kind of final question for us to discuss is can too much story ruin a game? I probably want to say yes because I think there have been examples of that but now suddenly I can't think of a good example of it. I think it's, mm. it's more about implementation and how the cutscenes are used. Because actually one possible example about this is Metal Gear Solid 4 because there's actually very little gameplay in that. Yeah, There's so many cutscenes in that. I mean yes they're great cutscenes, but some of them are literally the length of movies. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They are. <laughs> I just say, uh, the problem is, I remember when I was finishing it, and I had work the next day, because it wasn't that long ago I played it, but I thought, well, it's, I'm at the end, and looking at my walk, going, I need to go to bed soon, because I've got work like some... <laughs> I know if you are in the morning yeah, yeah. comparatively and it's like end end just finish the bloody cutscene but it's like more exhibition done so <laughs> that one problem with it yeah okay so you're, you're absolutely right I think 
there is elements where too much story I don't know if it's an inconvenience on our time. I don't know if there's too much story or if it's just that we don't have the time to, to digest also, it yeah, any longer. It's, it's more implementation as well. Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, you could, again, I mentioned about exposition dumps of Metacritic Cell 4. It's a similar case with movies. It's, it's too, although, to be fair, I do love a good exposition dump. So it's all about how they use, does it make sense in the story, how you combine that with gameplay, but also what is the gameplay in the first place? Because some games have worked better than others based on the gameplay. Well, so I'll ask you one more question then, following from that. Should games be brave enough to do away from cutscenes if they're not necessary or if it's deemed that they just add something which detracts from the If piece. they're not necessary, they shouldn't. But I'm not saying by any means get rid of cutscene because cutscene, do you have a really good example of this? That's actually the Yakuza series. I've been recently, well up until Zelda came out, playing Yakuza 0. That game has a lot of cutscenes interspersed in and you've got where you're out in the, the two different city kind of going around doing side quests but then you get like a five, ten minute cutscene but they're actually really enjoyable. Mm, okay. So I, I think that's a strong point of how they can work. And that they're not dead. I've, but I always think Japan's, Japan's output of games have been some of the strongest user cutscenes. Mm. Whereas I think sometimes the West have faltered, and that's why with some like the Bethesda games, you don't get them in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my favourite range of games, the franchise, is actually Broken Sword. If you know much about Broken Sword, it's kind of very adventure games that start as point and click. Funnily enough, the most recent titles kind of gone back to what they knew best. <laughs> but the use, again, of cutscenes there to. to, to um, Unreveal, kind of the unreveal, just reveal. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, okay. But the story there to um, reveal, to reveal story as you go along. The cutscene there, obviously playing its classic role, which I, I really, really love. But that brings me on to a subject, perhaps for the next podcast, and that is cinematic elements that can enhance the game, and particular soundtracks, mm. because I think soundtracks for games are is a massive element and one that is often overlooked. Well, we talked about how great it was in the Mass Effect trilogy, how important it was to those. Absolutely. And in actual fact, the, the role of the soundtrack in the MMO as well. I mean, we talk about composers like Jeremy Saul or Lenny Moore, who wrote the soundtrack to Outcast, which was a game back in, I think it was 99 or something like that. Full orchestra being used. And it's very much like films. We can remember a video game by the soundtrack. As a, you know, the soundtrack as a, as a standalone product from a game can mean an awful lot, can't it? So there's that as well. So I think we'll finish there. So thanks ever so much for uh, listening to this episode. In the next episode, like we spoke about, we're going to talk about cinematic elements, particularly the game soundtrack, and we hope you can join us then. So it's bye from me. And goodbye from me. See you soon.